0: Welcome to the Air Health R Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air, and I started Air Health R Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. Earlier this month, I had the opportunity to speak at the American College of Chest Physicians conference in Hawaii. It was on the beautiful island of Oahu, and obviously the horror of what had unfolded on the neighboring island of Maui and Lahaina was fresh on my mind. I was there to speak about a variety of topics, but in particular on wildfires and their impact on health, as well as climate change and clean air advocacy. It's really important to me as a physician to try to step out of my ICU and clinic and think about the things in our world that are driving patients to need my care in the first place. One of the talks I gave there was called Clean Air and Climate Advocacy for the Busy Clinician. And as I was working on it, I realized that this applies to all of us, not just clinicians. Most of us have very full, busy lives and multiple competing obligations. Many of us have children or elderly relatives for whom we are caring. Many of us have jobs, and often more than one job. It can all feel really overwhelming, in the midst of our busy lives, to consider the fact that we really only have seven years to get our CO2 emissions down to half of what they were in 2010. And we have until 2050 to get to net-zero carbon emissions if we want to have any hope of having a stable climate or a habitable planet in 100 years. Like many parents, I lie awake at night worried about the future of the planet that we are leaving to our children. Sometimes that seems so long-term, and I need to worry about the short-term of the day-to-day, getting people to school, to their appointments, to their after-school activities, cooking dinner, and more. I've struggled to figure out how best to include clean air and climate advocacy in my life and my family life. This episode is me sharing some ways I have found that work for me, and to offer some potential suggestions for other busy people worried about clean air and the climate, but who don't know how to work advocacy for it into their lives. This is just one person's perspective, and there are many other options out there, but I offer this if it is helpful to you. So what are we going to cover today? I'm basically going to catch you up to speed on all the information you need to be a climate change and clean air advocate in 10 minutes. I call it Climate Change and Air Pollution 101. Then I'm going to talk you through a little bit of how you can step out of your regular routine and start to incorporate engagement options into it. And I really just want to emphasize that a little bit of effort really goes a long way. So I want you to listen to this with the idea that whatever time you actually have and whatever you actually find yourself able to do is enough. I think it's really important going forward to think about how we can weave advocacy into our everyday lives so it fits seamlessly into what we do. So first, climate change and air pollution 101. Climate change is sickening and killing us now. Air pollution is sickening and killing us now and at levels that are deemed safe. The burden of climate change and air pollution is not equally shared. Climate change and air pollution cost all of us money, and there are solutions at all levels that would benefit from you as an advocate. So first of all, where are we now? So according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, since pre-industrial times, human activities have caused approximately one degree Celsius of global warming. We are already seeing consequences for people around us, nature, and all of our livelihoods. At our current emissions rate, we will reach 1.5 degrees Celsius between 2030 and 2052. But the important thing to know is there's actually really good news in their last report, that the past emissions that we've already made alone do not commit the world to 1.5 degrees Celsius. I think there's a lot of fatalism out there, this spirit of, well, there's nothing we can do Everything's just getting worse, the emissions are continuing, but there really are things we can do. So to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is a very important threshold, CO2 emissions need to fall by around 45% by 2030, and that's 45% of 2010 levels. To keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, CO2 emissions need to reach net zero by around 2050. So what is actually happening to our planet with these greenhouse gas emissions? Well, if we continue to emit high levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, by the end of the century, we know that most of the United States will have maximum temperatures in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. There will be places around the world where there will be unsurvivable temperatures from the combination of heat and humidity. I think many imagine that we will be able to count on air conditioning or other strategies to save us, but we also know that power outages and brownouts often occur in times of high energy demand, and that people across the country and our world are already dying regularly from extreme events like heat. You can learn more about this in the Heat Kills episode from last month. We know that carbon dioxide in the air is basically a plant food, so increasing climate temperatures as well as increasing carbon dioxide in the air leads to increasing allergens, We have a longer pollen season in certain areas. The pollen can be more intense and allergenic. For more on this, you can listen to the episode from the first season with Professor Ziska about how pollen is changing because of climate change. Climate change is also fueling catastrophic events like heat domes, wildfires, hurricanes, floods, and droughts. Obviously, these catastrophes have happened prior to global warming activities. However, climate change is making them happen more frequently and with increasing severity. They can also combine to make natural disasters even worse. We saw this heartbreakingly in Lahaina, where drought from climate change coupled with hurricane force winds and more led to catastrophic loss of life and community. These events not only cause destruction in the immediate term, killing individuals, destroying homes, workplaces and communities, and displacing people in the region, they can also have health effects farther away. We know, for example, that the health impact of wildfire smoke is not limited to the area immediately around the wildfire. Increasingly, smoke from wildfires is traveling across countries and the world, impacting people thousands of miles away. When waters from floods and hurricanes recede, there can be significant mold damage and other building damage that limits available housing and more. These catastrophic events also force people to leave their communities. Droughts fuel food scarcity and instability around the world, fueling conflict in addition, and forcing people to leave their communities to find security. We have climate migrants who need to move both within their own country and across borders. Increasingly, this will become a source of conflict if we cannot come together to recognize that we all share one planet. The mental health toll of climate change cannot be overstated. I've already shared that I lay awake worrying about climate change, and I live a much more comfortable life compared to the vast majority of people on this planet. Kids face a more uncertain future because of it. The PTSD and fear following catastrophic climate events can be significant. The fear of these events happening to one's own community is very real. We know that rates of mental illness worsened in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and have stayed a significant burden. Climate change threatens our present and future in very real and very costly ways. Any time spent advocating to decrease its threat is time well spent. So that was climate change in a nutshell. What is happening because of the greenhouse gas emissions from our combustion of fossil fuels? To be clear, it is not just carbon dioxide that is a greenhouse gas. We know that methane emissions, black carbon and more, also contribute to warming. These and other pollutants also result from combustion of fossil fuels, as well as other sources such as agriculture. But what about the other health effects of combustion? This is where we are going to start our Clean Air Advocacy 101 session. So, We need energy to power our modern lives. We get a lot of that energy from coal plants, burning gasoline, diesel, natural gas, and more. All of this is essentially lighting things on fire to generate that energy. And where there's fire, there's smoke. Combustion results in a whole host of chemicals, from particulate matter to gas phase compounds such as ozone, oxides of nitrogen, sulfur dioxide, and more. It can start to feel overwhelming when you start seeing all of these chemical abbreviations and thinking about all the different health effects that they have as individual components. But you actually don't need to understand all the different health effects of each different element of air pollution and where their toxic thresholds are. Simply, as someone who wants to advocate for clean air, it's often easiest just to understand that breathing air pollution is a lot like being exposed to secondhand smoke, because we have study after study showing that the health effects are similar. I'm going to touch on just three pollutants today and studies that illustrate this because I want this to be an efficient use of your time. So, let's begin with the two elements of air pollution that make up the air quality index, with which some of you may be familiar particulate matter and ozone. So, what is particulate matter? When you look at your air quality index, you may see something that says PM 2.5. The PM refers to particulate matter, and the 2.5 is the size of the particles in microns, which is a very small unit of measurement. A human hair is around 50 microns in diameter, and so PM 2.5 is smaller than 2.5 microns in diameter. So, it's a teensy tiny fraction of the size of a human hair. The reason that's important is that when we inhale these particles, they just go through our upper airway, down our trachea, out our breathing tubes, and into the tiny air sacs in our lungs called alveoli, where they cross easily across the single cell membrane into the blood vessels of our body. They then circulate around the body, and they can cause disease in every organ system and from womb to tomb. Studies of particulate matter really seem similar to the effects of cigarette smoking. For example, particulate matter causes lung cancer. It also causes restriction of the growth of the fetus in the wombs of pregnant people inhaling the pollution and causing them to deliver early. When babies are born prematurely, their lungs are not as fully developed, and they are at risk for future lung illness. Particulate matter further can cause flares of asthma and chronic bronchitis and can kill people who have scarring in their lungs. It also changes the immune system in the lungs and makes people more likely to die from lung infections and viruses such as flu, COVID, and more. PM2.5 causes heart disease, disease in your blood vessels, especially those around the heart and the brain. Increases in particulate matter can also cause sudden problems in those vessels like heart attacks and strokes. There are also studies of MRI changes in children's brains. We worry about behavioral issues and more. There's even concern about cognitive decline in the elderly. Really, at every life stage, inhaling particulate matter is bad news. So on to ozone. Ozone makes up the other component of the air quality index in the U.S. Ozone is what we call good up high and bad nearby. So it is actually a secondary pollutant that's kind of made downstream, and it's remained stubbornly high despite clean air efforts. It's very reactive and can cause a great deal of damage to the human body when we inhale it. It's a significant respiratory irritant and drives many people to the hospital every year with things like asthma flares. One study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2019 also looked at long-term effects of breathing ozone. They were able to look at CT scans over time of people's lungs, following them from the year 2000 to 2018 in multiple cities around the U.S., including Chicago, Winston-Salem, Baltimore, Los Angeles, St. Paul, and New York. They looked at ozone exposure and how it affected the lungs. Now, average levels in these cities range from around 15 to 25 parts per billion of ozone. I should tell you that the EPA limit on ozone is 70 parts per billion, they They've set it a more unusual limit that has to do with the annual fourth highest daily maximum eight-hour concentration averaged over three years, so it's a little more technical. But around half the people in this group also smoke cigarettes. So the researchers were able to actually compare the impact of breathing ozone with the impact of cigarette smoking. And they found that the increases in ozone exposure over 10 years resulted in the same amount of emphysema as smoking. Smoking cigarettes for around 29 years. Now, emphysema refers to the destruction of lung tissue, especially the air sacs that bring oxygen into our bodies. It can leave people breathless, dependent on oxygen, and with damaged lungs that are prone to getting infected over and over again. I care for many people in my clinic and ICU who suffer from severe emphysema, generally driven by cigarette smoking. But obviously, breathing polluted air literally adds fuel to the fire. And this is why I often use the analogy for air pollution of being exposed to cigarette smoke. In fact, PM 2.5 has now surpassed cigarette smoking as the health threat most shortening lives around the globe. I think when people think about dying of air pollution, they often think of super polluted air like in India or parts of China. However, there is still a problem here in the United States. There are a whole host of studies that show this. One of the largest studies was published in 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It studied over 60 million Medicare beneficiaries from the year 2000 to 2012, and they looked at the annual PM2.5 and ozone levels according to the zip code of each person and how many people died. And this was a very careful study. They controlled for demographics, eligibility for Medicaid, and a whole host of other analyses. And what did they find? They found that for every 10 micrograms per meter cubed increase in PM2.5, there was a 7% increase in the risk of death. Furthermore, this risk started far below the 12 micrograms per meter cube recommendation set as the safe legal limit by the EPA. In fact, below this level, the increase in risk of death for an increase of 10 micrograms per cubic meter of PM2.5 was actually steeper in terms of a risk curve. It was 13%. They also looked at the risk of an increase of 10 parts per billion in ozone concentration and found that the risk of death again went up linearly by 1% for every increase. Again, this risk of death started as low as 5 micrograms per cubic meter for PM2.5 and as low as 30 parts per billion of ozone and continued to increase up to ozone levels that are well below the current EPA standard. We see similar trends in other pollutant studies. The third pollutant I'll mention in this talk is nitrogen dioxide. Now, the EPA standard for this is 53 parts per billion, but we know from a host of studies that bad health effects can start below this level. For example, a study in 2014 in the Journal of Exposure, Science, and Environmental Epidemiology looked at air pollution levels in Detroit, Michigan, and Windsor, Ontario over a two-week sampling period from 2008 to 2009. They looked at levels of nitrogen dioxide as well as ER visits and hospitalizations for asthma for people between the ages of 5 and 89 years old, and they standardized this to the overall age and gender distribution in the population. And what they found was that as the parts per billion of nitrogen dioxide started to increase, starting as low as 10 and up to 15, they found increasing rates of people having to go to the ER or be hospitalized for asthma. Again, in the graph they publish in the study, its upper limit ends at 15, and the EPA standard for nitrogen dioxide is 53 parts per billion. Again, just to emphasize that just because someone is living in an area where the air quality meets EPA standards, it doesn't mean that their air quality is healthy, especially if they already have underlying disease. So let's go back to that New England Journal of Medicine study from 2017 that showed that people were dying from PM2.5 levels below the EPA standard of 12. That risk was actually not shared equally. Men were more likely to die than women, for example, and that may be due to a greater tendency towards outdoor work or inhaling an increased dose of the pollution. Patients who were black or of other minority communities also had an increased risk of death, and this was not explained by socioeconomic status alone. It really gets to something that we increasingly know that is very important whenever you're doing clean air advocacy, and that is that not everyone breathes the same amount of polluted air in any given zip code. For example, you might imagine a zip code that incorporates an entire town. One area of the town may have tree-lined areas, parks, single-family homes, and the other area of the town may have high-traffic roads near less expensive housing or multifamily housing with many people breathing the air of that local road. This is something we always need to consider when we're thinking about the health impacts of air pollution. They are not felt equally, and it's important to understand the history of why this is. And for that, it's important to understand a concept called redlining. Redlining refers to a practice that was put in place by an entity called the Home Owners Loan Corporation, which was actually part of the New Deal emerging from the Great Depression, and what it did is it actually restructured the U.S. mortgage market by incorporating appraisal of home value, which was a new practice, training and employing appraisers who would work with realtors to create these neighborhood-level risk assessments of over 200 cities, explicitly assessing whether or not a neighborhood was going to be deemed too risky to extend these new 30-year government-backed mortgages. Racially exclusive covenants were often explicitly required to secure funding for building new housing developments. They explicitly labeled black neighborhoods as too risky for certain mortgages. Often where there was a more integrated community in place already, Black residents and immigrant residents were actually forced out to enable them to be more predominantly white to receive this funding for housing. And so the net effect of this program is that you actually had both public and private funding for native-born white families to build generational wealth through home ownership that appreciated in value and a transfer of wealth and lack of this opportunity away from Black and immigrant communities. If you haven't ever learned about this, I really recommend a book called The Color of Law, which is by an author named Richard Rothstein. I learned a great deal from it. I have to say I did not learn much about this in school, but it really teaches us a lot about how our cities and communities came to look the way they look. You can actually go to a website hosted by the University of Richmond called Mapping Inequality and look up the redlining maps for your own city if they were done. It's really eye-opening because you can see their impacts today. What ended up happening is that you had communities of color often living in areas where land values ended up being cheaper because of this practice. And so freeways, polluting industries are often located in historically redlined communities. And what has happened is you end up with redlining of the air and this has been looked at in a host of studies. One study published in the American Journal of Epidemiology in 2018 looked at over 5,000 children in the Children's Health Study in California from 1993 to 2014, and they found that Hispanic kids were much more likely to live by a freeway or a major non-freeway road than white children. They were also exposed to higher levels of nitrogen dioxide and also more likely to experience asthma symptoms. We know that redlining is still affecting air quality. You can take a deep dive into this by listening to the episode last season with Dr. Neetha Talker called Hidden in Plain Sight, where we talk about the history of redlining and lung function and lung function testing. We know that those old redlining maps are still affecting communities today. I see this every day because I actually work at Emanuel Hospital in North Portland in the neighborhood of Albina, which was a historically redlined district. I've shared the story of one of my patients on this podcast who came to tell her experience of growing up in that neighborhood. You can hear her story in Asia Albina and Asthma. The most important thing to know about advocating for clean air is that policy can actually work. When we clean up the air, we actually save both lives and money. So one study that gives me a lot of hope was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. And they actually looked at school locations and lung function at a whole host of different schools in California and a variety of cities. And they look at three different timeframes while California was working on cleaning up its diesel exhaust and decreasing air pollution. So the first group of students they looked at was between 1994 and 1998. They went again between 1997 and 2001, and then again between 2007 and 2011. And what they found over time was that the policies that California was putting in place to clean up the air worked. Most air pollutants were falling, with the exception of ozone, which can be stubbornly high. And what they found was that as the pollutants fell, kids were more likely to have normal lung size. As the air has gotten cleaner, kids are much less likely to have lungs that are small for their age, which means that they are much less likely over the course of their lives to get lung diseases like asthma or chronic bronchitis. This also works with things as simple as cleaning up the emissions of school buses and transitioning to less polluting fuels. One study followed kids while the school buses they were riding were having diesel oxidative catalysts and crankcase ventilation systems installed, and while there was a transition to ultra-low sulfur diesel. They recruited over 300 kids for the study and monitored them for over four years, measuring the pollution on the buses and the number of sick days missed by the kids and also measures of lung inflammation. They were expecting that the kids with asthma would miss fewer sick days. What they found was that all kids missed fewer sick days, and especially those with asthma, and they had lower levels of lung inflammation. I really like this study because I think it shows how real world action to clean up the air has important short term effects as well as long term effects. To learn more about this study and to dive into its details, you can listen to the Healthy Buses and Healthy Kids episode from season one of the podcast. So that was scratching the surface on air pollution. So you have now completed Climate Change and Air Pollution 101. They are vast topics. There is so much I didn't cover. But these are some basics that you can use to just start advocating for a stable climate and clean air now. But how do you do that? How do you actually step outside your current routine and engage in the community to encourage clean air and a stable climate? Well, just like this is important to you, it's probably important to the community around you and wherever you already have community. Again, we really only have seven years to do this. I know there are a lot of stories out there of people radically reshaping their lives and taking very dramatic action to work on climate and clean air advocacy, and that is wonderful. But that obviously can't work for everybody. It's going to be much more efficient for you to engage where you are already engaged in your life and to deepen those engagements. And advocacy can be a source of bringing people together to talk about what really matters to them. Maybe your kids enjoy the parks and recreation department in your town. Maybe you can advocate for planting more trees in those parks you already take your kids to play. And again, thinking about that history of redlining, always make sure you're expanding your notion of the children in your community to include everybody and make sure everybody has access to shaded and clean air where they are. You can look at your workplace and potentially start or join a green team there, helping people bond at work over a shared sense of purpose of making your workplace more sustainable and likely healthier for all of you. Maybe you can engage with your own community at church or your house of worship or some other community and organization. For example, in my own church, we've had vegetarian cook-offs where we all come together as a community to learn how to make better low methane dishes for those meat-free Mondays. Sometimes people agree to fast from high methane meals during Lent and to learn about how our food choices can affect the climate. Make it a habit to ask the place where you regularly go, whether it's your workplace, your grocery store, your church community, to ensure that there are plentiful electric vehicle chargers. Especially post-pandemic, our communities are very fragmented. This can be a wonderful opportunity to build community. If you end up doing something that makes you a bit nervous, like going around and meeting lawmakers or city council members or senior members at your work, do it with friends or colleagues. For example, I had the opportunity to go around Capitol Hill for the first time last spring when I was at the American Thoracic Society to advocate to our lawmakers, and it certainly made me feel more comfortable knowing that I had a couple other physician colleagues with me. This also builds community. So think about what you already have planned in your day, your week, your month, or your year. Is there a way to add a little bit of climate and clean air advocacy into it? For example, at that same meeting last spring where I went around to the Capitol to meet with lawmakers staff, it was important to take advantage of the fact that our meeting was in Washington, D.C. We were already there. So the American Thoracic Society, especially members of the Environmental Health Policy Committee, took the opportunity to go to the Capitol and express that as lung doctors and those who take care of people in the ICU and with lung disease, it was really important to us that our patients have clean air and a stable climate. I think it's very important that our elected leaders take action to secure the future of our families. So I took my family. I think it's important for our kids to also see that we care about their future. You know, honestly, it drew a lot of smiles when they came walking into a medical doctor meeting with a bunch of scientists and doctors walking around and there are my kids in shorts holding up signs asking people to care about their future. As someone who has a deep admiration for scientists and the scientific method, one of my favorite signs was one that my daughter carried from an American Thoracic Society staff member that said, What do we want? Evidence-based science. When do we want it? After peer review. That one tickled me. You have likely already seen how climate change and air pollution can affect your own community. Maybe you're worried about how much healthcare costs and you would like there to be way less asthma in your community because you're tired of footing the bills for inhalers, sick days, hospital stays, and everything. Maybe you work in healthcare and you see how your ICUs and clinics are full and you can't get patients in because things are so hectic right now and everywhere is understaffed and overworked. Maybe you have family members that are suffering from these diseases. Maybe you have someone in your family who suffers from lung cancer despite not having smoked. All of these things are affecting us now and just looking around where you can already see it can be helpful because I think it is really important to connect with values and human stories. This should not be something that aligns with one political party or another. And there's already far too much division in our communities where people first want to label something by giving it the identity of a political party or a political position, and that is just not helpful. I think starting with values and human stories matters, and you are going to know the values of your own community, which are most important, and you're going to know the people in your own community. For example, if you live in a community where there is a great deal of concern for the health of unborn children, advocating for clean air to allow children to fully develop in the womb before they are born can be very powerful. I have a special concern for the veteran community because I worked at two VA hospitals, and the health of those who have served us is very important to me. If you live near a military base and there is a great deal of concern about avoiding conflict related to fossil fuels, advocating for a transition to more energy independence by moving away from oil and gas and towards renewable resources can be very concordant with those values. Maybe you live in an area where brownouts and blackouts are a significant problem when catastrophic events such as heat domes and wildfire events occur. Any transition towards cleaner energy will need a strengthened grid with potentially more decentralization. Ensuring we have multiple ways to keep people healthy and clean air and stable temperatures will be very important. So how do you talk to the people who make some of these decisions who are outside of your immediate circle? Well, I think at first that seems very intimidating, but I think it's always important to remember that ideally in a democracy, for example, elected officials are people they are just like us and they should, in general, as a group, reflect what we all want for our communities and our families and ourselves. So they should hear from you. This isn't a weird thing to do. It is not crazy to actually reach out to the people who are elected at all levels to represent you and tell them what you think. In fact, I would say that if you don't reach out, they are only going to be hearing from some very specific voices like paid lobbyists or other special interests, and not from the vast majority of people who really do want clean air and a stable climate for their kids, but are often too busy getting through their day-to-day lives to make it happen. Often our elected officials do have things they can do, but they also want to know if this is something that their constituents care about. Having talked to a lot of elected officials at this point, I really do think that the vast majority are very well-meaning people who are honestly trying to make their community a better place. I know there's a lot of hatred and vitriol and social media chatter about politicians. But again, politicians are people. And most people, I think, honestly want to do the right thing. So what I would suggest is that you look up who represents you at your most local level. That could be the school board. That can be your city council. That could be your neighborhood association. Look up who represents you at the county level. Who are your county commissioners? And then look up who represents you at your state house. Honestly, most people have no idea who the representatives to their state legislature or assembly are. Find out who yours is. You probably have two probably a senator and a representative, but sometimes they go by other names in other states or have slightly different structures. Find your representative. And then look up who represents you in Congress. You have a senator and you have a representative. Look them each up. And then get in touch. Find out their email, find out the office phone number, and call or send a letter or send an email and just say, hello, this is my name. This is my community. You represent me, and I want to share a story with you. And then share a story. Share what matters to you. Share about how you've seen climate change affecting you or your community. Share about how air pollution concerns you. Maybe a wildfire caused you to evacuate at some point. Maybe you have a family member affected by asthma or lung cancer. Maybe there was a severe flood or a hurricane in your area. And just say you're worried that this is bad and it's only going to get worse because of climate change. And you're worried about how unhealthy air is affecting you and your community and your loved ones. It's okay to talk about yourself and your concerns and then ask what this individual is going to do to try to help address climate change or make the air cleaner. If you're feeling extra brave, ask for a meeting at at least one of these levels and consider taking some friends to go with you. Once you start to do this, it becomes less scary. And I think if more of us talked regularly to the government that we, the people, are supposed to be creating, it would probably be a better government. The other thing that is hard is not just getting started, but feeling that whatever we're doing as one individual is meaningless in the scheme of things. And I really want you to just understand that a little effort goes a long way. Planting a few little seeds can yield things you could never imagine. Whatever time you have is enough. Working in medicine, I know a lot of people who took a lot of science classes and worked hard to get good grades, and they really want to do everything perfectly and not make any mistakes. And obviously, you definitely want that in your doctor. When someone is making life and death decisions, you really want them to be totally committed to getting everything right. But sometimes if you're sitting around waiting to get everything right, you're waiting too long. As they say, the world will be saved by B plus work. right? Give yourself some grace and recognize that you're not going to say everything perfectly. You'll probably learn and make a few mistakes on the way, and that's okay. I recommend you just start by starting. I'll just share a little bit of my own journey in case you find it helpful. I was on the executive committee of the Oregon Thoracic Society at our annual meeting in 2017 when the American Lung Association let us know that there were a few bills in Oregon legislature that session that were focusing on things like tobacco control and diesel exhaust exposure. And they were interested in a lung doctor and an ICU doctor who could speak about the impact of air pollution and tobacco smoke to legislators. So I ended up going around with one of the representatives of the American Lung Association on a few days to talk to different legislators about the issue. I learned a lot from that experience, namely that the American Lung Association had one very hardworking person Big shout out to Carrie Neeson of the ALA of Oregon, who was splitting her time between the state legislatures of Washington and Oregon and a whole host of other local areas trying to advocate for lung health. Meanwhile, at every juncture, there were tobacco companies or other businesses who are, I'm sure, lobbying in very good faith on behalf of their industries, but she was up against a lot as just one person. So that inspired me to continue to reach out and try to help. I worked with our Oregon Thoracic Society to ensure that we submitted testimony locally at our county levels and our state level about the importance of clean air. I also started to meet more people who were working on behalf of clean air. I spoke at some town halls or county events where people were trying to understand the health impacts of diesel exhaust and more, and encouraged other physicians and healthcare workers I knew to get in touch with decision makers about the importance of this issue. When the EPA was considering rolling back air pollution standards and our local Department of Environmental Quality offered opportunity to testify, I encouraged others to join me to testify at it. Again, we we're only a couple of lung doctors showing up, but I hope it was helpful. However, this can take a lot of time to have to go to different things and testify. And one thing that shifted things a bit in a helpful way was shockingly the pandemic. Now, as someone who worked in the ICU during the pandemic, I can say the COVID pandemic was a truly horrible experience. The death toll was enormous, and I think it has changed healthcare forever. I do hope some other things have shifted, however, that may make it more possible for everyone to participate more fully in decisions that affect their health. One of the things that improved was a lowering of the barrier of being able to testify to different governing bodies because we now had the ability to testify remotely. I remember at the time I was serving on a statewide task force to look at ways to support our businesses in transitioning to cleaner diesel engines. And before the pandemic, I had to ensure I had a full day off work so I could go all the way down to Salem, to go all the way to our state capital to be able to spend time in person for this task force. And after the pandemic started and we went remote, we were actually able to participate remotely. I can say that being able to testify at the state, local, and county level remotely, despite being at work or having just finished a night shift or staying home with a sick kid really expands the number of people who can ensure their voices are heard. Most importantly, for those of you listening to this podcast, the pandemic finally kicked me into gear into releasing a podcast and launching Our Health, Our Health. I've been thinking about it doing it for several years at that point after I found myself going from decision maker to decision maker saying things like fire is bad for the lungs, whether it's coming from tobacco, diesel, forests. And I just figured If I'm saying the same thing over and over again, I might as well just say it into a podcast. (laughs) Again, I didn't learn about a lot of this, these impacts of air pollution in medical school, and I know a lot of us are still learning more about it, so I figured as I learned, I could record and share. But speaking of breathing, it is very important to put on your own oxygen mask before you put on oxygen masks for other people. You have to protect your own voice before you can carry that voice to others. One of my mentors in fellowship taught me a phrase that he encouraged me to use while I was a trainee, being asked to get involved in a host of different projects, for which I probably didn't have time. I think it's super useful, and I think everyone should know it. And it is, I do not currently have the bandwidth to give that project the attention it deserves. It is something you can all use. So it acknowledges that we all have real limitations on our time and attention that are independent of the worth of any particular endeavor. Because when you start to work on things that really matter, like clean air and a stable climate, there are a whole host of very passionate people out there as well who would be delighted to have your energy in their movement. And that is wonderful, and it can be a great source of joy and community. But it's also important that it's not a drain to you and that you feel okay saying no, because it is in saying no to some things that will allow you to say yes to the most important things. And you never know, with the small seed you plant, what fruit it might bear. For example, Asia Allen, one of the patients who inspired this work, shared her story on this podcast. And I actually was able to introduce her to Mary Pivado from Neighbors for Clean Air, another first season podcast guest. And they've actually worked together, and her story has been highlighted by that organization and she now serves on their board. And obviously her voice is a much more important voice than mine in terms of the impacts of air pollution on someone's health. I honestly feel that incorporating advocacy into part of our everyday life is healthy. Sometimes the world can feel overwhelming and working for some concrete good in the world is good for us. It's good for our mental health. It's good for our communities. And even on the days where you're just worried about making enough money or saving enough money, cleaning up the air and stabilizing the climate saves us all money. Remember that the return on investment for the Clean Air Act blows pretty much any other investment out of the water. Most importantly, if not you, who? We have seven years to get our carbon dioxide emissions to below half of 2010 levels, and we need to be at net zero emissions by 2050. This needs all of us, and if all of us do a little bit, we can do a lot. As a busy person, I have increasingly found audio mediums to be helpful for me to learn while multitasking. For example, I really enjoy podcasts, which is probably why I make one. I'm assuming, since you're listening to a podcast too, that you also find listening to materials to be helpful for your learning. So embrace that the whole message of this is to do what works for you. I have also found checking out books from my public library on the Libby app to be helpful to learn more. If you're interested in books on climate change, I can recommend one fiction and one nonfiction book that touch on what future paths we may take. In terms of fiction, the Ministry for the Future explores a fictitious account of the next hundred years and a variety of potential climate impacts and choices that individuals and countries may make, both devastating and heartening. I have definitely been thinking about this novel a great deal since I read it. In terms of nonfiction, and especially if you are looking for potential solutions, I recently finished All We Can Save, which is a series of essays by different individuals working for a stable climate, and it comes from a whole variety of backgrounds and perspectives. Most importantly, it really does focus on what can be done to provide some hope. I think about this often with our kids. The climate crisis is going to be put on their shoulders regardless of whether we teach them about it or not. There are many people who want to not talk to our kids about climate change or spare them from learning about it, But the only option then is that they have a very rude awakening one day at the world which we are leaving to them. I think it is so much more important to help focus on what we can do so they feel some agency and not despair. It is also important to help prepare them for the very necessary work during their lifetimes to maintain peaceful, strong communities and loving relationships on an increasingly unstable planet, ultimately, hopefully, stabilizing it. I sincerely hope that this will be the legacy we leave our children. Though, realistically, it will be as the line from the musical Hamilton says, What is a legacy? Planting seeds in a garden we never get to see. I know in my lifetime we will continue to have catastrophic wildfires and floods and droughts and hurricanes and increasing conflict due to climate change and often its resultant migration. But I sincerely hope if we plant a bunch of seeds of change with our advocacy and action that our children and grandchildren will see a better world. So what concrete steps can you take after this podcast? Consider doing just one of these per week or month, whatever pace works for you, or just pick one. First, Find out who represents you at the city council, county, state, and federal levels. Send them an email, introduce yourself, and remember to connect on values. Lead with stories about how you see clean air and climate change affecting you and your loved ones. Ask to meet with someone on at least one of those levels, whether virtually or in person. Second, reflect on your current community and relationships. What are you already doing that could meld easily with climate and clean air advocacy and action? You could consider working on planting non pollen generating trees in parks and in historically redlined areas. You could look into whether there is room for solar panels or more EV chargers at your work, school, or community, or even your home. Could you get your church or workplace to start a green committee or join a committee there? You could look at the supply chain in your work. Is there a big target that could be greener? Can you talk to them about what steps they're taking to improve? In my world, metered dose inhalers have a bad climate impact, and I usually try to talk to their manufacturers about it whenever I get the chance. Consider greening your next meeting or get-together. Have low-methane menu options. Look for energy efficiency in the meetings. Encourage people to bring their own coffee cups or water bottles. Make sure there's water bottle fill stations, etc. Third, you can just scroll through the Air Health, AirHealth, Health podcast episodes for topics of interest to you. Each one has some action items and resources in the show notes and references in the associated blog link. For example, do you hate the noise and pollution and climate impact of leaf blowers or other gas-powered lawn equipment? Look into ordinances to help replace or retire them with an eye on avoiding negative impact to vulnerable communities. You can listen to the Yards on Fire episode from Season 3 to learn more. Are you passionate about electric vehicles? Learn how the American Lung Association can help you calculate how many asthma exacerbations can be avoided and how much money your community can save with a clean energy transition for transportation. You can listen to the Road to Clean Air episode from season one to learn more. If you're concerned about racial inequities, learn about the history of redlining in your community. Listen to that Hidden in Plain Sight episode from last season. Are you worried about wildfires? Learn what you can do to make your community more resilient and prepare yourself and your family. There are a host of wildfire episodes from which to choose, but you could start with the Our Health and Wildfire Season episode from Season 2 or the Fighting Fire with Fire episode from Season 3. Fourth, find national organizations working on clean air and a stable climate. There are a host of them. Of course, I am very fond of the American Lung Association. Clean Air Moms also works in this space. Just remember, advocacy is an individual journey. Bring your whole self to it, and also remember to put your own oxygen mask on. You don't have to do everything, but you can do something. For my donation ask this episode, please consider a donation to the Hawaii Community Foundation Maui Strong Fund to help those affected by the wildfire in Lahaina, which was spurred on by drought and hurricane-force winds, both exacerbated by climate change. Finally, and this is a first for me asking this, please consider leaving this podcast a five-star review wherever you listen. I have been informed that it helps people find the podcast. Please also share an episode with friends if you find one that is helpful. If you have any concerns and you don't think you can leave a five-star review, please email those concerns to me at airhealthourhealth at gmail.com. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.